please turn with me in your Bible to Revelation. Chapter 2. Revelation, the second chapter, as we begin, actually continue a series which we began back in before the turn of the year on the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which were sent by the Spirit of God through John to seven representative congregations in Asia Minor in about 95 A.D. in order to encourage them in the faith to persevere to the end against all odds and all persecution and opposition in order to remind them of their responsibilities in the faith in order to warn them regarding their uh, problems associated with their faithfulness, to give promises and warnings dependent on their response to that which the Lord Jesus himself sends to them by way of these letters. Now, my purpose this morning is to begin the actual exposition of the letters to the churches having given something of an introduction in two messages back, I believe, in December to you. I do not have time today to go back through those, but briefly to bring you up to date as to the background of our understanding of the significance of these letters to the seven churches by focusing upon two points that we made when we preached the introductory messages before. Those two points being, first of all, the relevance of these letters to us, and second, their comfort for us, their relevance to us, and their comfort for us. The Lord Jesus Christ has addressed himself to churches, and he has adjured John to send this epistle, this writing, this book, to the seven churches. All that is written in the entire book of Revelation was to be sent to and read by or read to these seven churches, not just these brief messages given to each church within the entire book. Each church was to receive the entire book of Revelation as given by Jesus Christ. Write what you see and send it to the seven churches. And so there is relevance to those seven churches in all the book of Revelation. But there also is relevance to us so that if you sit through some of the introductory material and sit through some of this, these letters to these churches in the first century, you'll not fall prey to the devil's logic in, in suggesting to your mind that somehow it is not pertinent to you who sit here in 1987 and have your own problems which may or may not have anything to do with what was going on in Ephesus or Smyrna or Philadelphia or Sardis, etc. in the first century. No, far from it, these letters written to the church involved in this book sent to the churches are relevant to us and that is seen, as you may remember, in the common conclusion of each letter. Look at verse 7 of chapter seven, chapter 2. In the letter to the Ephesians, he says in verse 7, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
what, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that same formula is repeated in each little note to each church. In verse 11, in verse 17, in verse 29, and in chapter 3, verses 6, 13, and 22, the same conclusion to every letter. Let him that has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. There are three things about that that make this very relevant to us. In the first place, these scriptures, these writings are spoken by God the Spirit. We, are seen, we see in the Revelation that it's Jesus Christ who's speaking the Revelation to John. And then again we see that it's the Spirit of God who's speaking to the churches. Well, which is it? Well, it's God that's speaking to the churches. God the Son, God the Son by His Spirit who proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. We remember, and we studied yesterday in the men's study in the doctrine of the Scripture, in Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that the Scriptures are breathed of God. They are the words of God, breathed by God. This is no less true to the letter or the book sent to the churches. The churches. They are the words of God, the Spirit. Will those words be not relevant to us who are to receive all of the Scripture as sent from God to us and whose lives, very lives, are dependent on every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God? Certainly that ought to undergird the relevance of these epistles to us. In the second place, their relevance to us not only is seen by the fact that they are spoken by God the Spirit, but that one address to one church concerns all the churches. In each case, each church is told, let him that has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So in Ephesus, they were to heed what God said to Thyatira. They were to hear what the Spirit said to Laodicea. What about you in Albany? Are you to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches of Asia Minor? No doubt you are. This is relevant to you. And in the third place, not to heed the word which is sent to the churches, not to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, is to lose what the Spirit is saying to the churches. If you do not repent, I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from you. I'll remove not only your witness, but the very substance of that which you're able to give witness to. So the Lord makes these very relevant to us in addressing us to hear what the Spirit says to all the churches, lest at any time, not giving the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard we should drift away from them. And you can see the, the brilliance of the devil who has brought in so much foolishness in interpreting the book of Revelation in our generation and in the past to deflect people's concentration from the ethical and the conscience-searching address of God the Spirit to their heart by focusing upon things of future uh, uh, supposed prophecy that have very little, if anything, to do with ethical behavior or the correction of sinful habit. It's typical of us not to want to hear the Spirit speak to us. 
We like to find out what he's saying, but not as though he is saying it to us for our good and for our changing. So, so much for the relevance of these epistles to the churches. These churches being representative of the manifold imperfections and varieties of the visible church all throughout the ages. Every visible church in every point in the history of the world has some of the qualities that these churches represent. They are representative churches, so the Spirit addresses them. But also, we understand their comfort for us as making these letters significant. Not only their relevance, but their comfort for us. And this is seen in the common introduction to each letter. Chapter 2, verse 2 says... I know thy works. In verse 9, I know to the church at Smyrna thy tribulation and thy poverty, etc. In verse 13, I know where you dwell in Pergamum, where Satan's seat is. In verse 19, he says, I know your works and your love and faith and ministry and patience and that the last works are more than the first. In chapter 3, verse 1, to Sardis, these things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that you have a name, that you live and are dead. Verse 8, to the church in Philadelphia, I know your works, and that you have a little power and did keep my word and did not deny my name. And again in verse 15 to Laodicea, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. Now, there's some comfort in that for some of us, and for some it may not be so comforting. The Lord knows to Laodicea and to Sardis what the Lord knew was not something they would want the Lord to know. But there's much comfort for us in this, as well as warning for us in this, in that our Lord knows what we are, where we are, and what we're undergoing. Now, this comfort can be derived by contemplating three things about our Lord. The glorious identity of the one speaking to us, and we saw that back in chapter 1. He is the exalted Lord, King, God, Savior himself. There's no mediator between us and Christ. He is our mediator. He is constantly caring for and speaking to his church. He's always near his church, standing in her midst. And we cited when we went through this earlier that the high priest back in the Old Testament, as you could find in Exodus chapter 30 and in other places, he always maintained the light in the tabernacle. Well, our high priest is constantly about the business of his order, his official responsibility in maintaining his light, his charge, his word, his truth, and in carrying out his ministry among the church in which he's seen to stand. There's comfort in the thought that our high priest, the one who's responsible for our worship, the one who's responsible for the conduct of his church, he is here. He knows he speaks, he cares, he's aware, and he reveals what he knows to us for our good, to correct us where we're wrong, to encourage us where we're right, to warn us as to our proper response to his address. So the glorious identity of the one speaking gives comfort to those who are in, in trouble or in sin, even in Laodicea. 
when he says, I know you're neither hot nor cold, he says, I chasten whom I love. And he gives them space to repent. And he offers them opportunity to turn and he blessed them. He's even in the most, the, the, most, the deadest one of the churches, or perhaps at least the one that's most self-deceived, uh, rivaling only that of Sardis, the Lord gives opportunity for repentance there. He sees a church in trouble and what does he do? He tells them the problem, but he knows the need and he gives them a way out. So there's comfort in it because of the identity of the speaker. But second, because of the omniscient perspective of the speaker. Not only is this the Lord himself who's managing a church and caring about her, but he knows everything. He sees the good. He sees the bad. In his love for his church, he commands her when even if she's full of problems, he never overlooks the marks of grace that he finds in his people. The faintest longings for holiness the smallest movings of faith, the least stirrings of love, he sees them and he rewards them and he encourages them. You who come here this morning, many of you wondering if you're even able to hear the word of God with a heart, wondering when you're going to awaken, when God's going to give you life again, when you're going to feel what you felt at one time, wondering if the word of God is even worth it, sometimes wondering if you're saved, and maybe you ought to wonder, I don't know, but you come and you have need, and you know your life is filled with all sorts of mess and, and problem and sin and iniquity. Who is it that is addressing you in these letters? He's the one who sees that you're here. Because you know you have a need. You're sitting in the place where the means of grace are going to be delivered to you. In spite of your discouragement and your weariness and your fear and your guilt, you are here and you're opening your mouth and you're saying, Lord, fill it. You're looking to Christ, your only hope. He knows and he sees that and he commends that. And he'll honor that and he'll reward that. But not only does he see the good, he sees the bad. His love isn't blind. The Lord's love is not some uh, immature, emotional kind of stuff that responds only to the external and the outward. His love is not a response to us. It's not what he gives us in reward to what we've given him. It's not based on any external or moral attractiveness in us that makes him feel good or from which he can gain something. He doesn't need us. His love is solid and mature, and it's not blind. It is love, but it's not silly. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So there's comfort in the omniscience of the Lord Jesus. As the psalmist said, where can I go from your presence? Everywhere I am, you're there. You know the words before they come out of my tongue. The nighttime is like the daytime with you. And he's, it's, it's almost as though the psalmist, as he goes through the psalm, would like to escape that. Where shall I go to escape? There's no place. Not even in hell. God sees and knows and is there. I can't get away from God. My conscience can't escape God. But then in the last of the Psalm 139, he comes to a wonderful conclusion of faith. Lord, search me and know me. In other words, I recognize you do know me. You are going to search me. I'm willingly, gladly wanting you to do it. And go further than that. Not only search me and know me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. But when you find the wicked way, lead me in the way everlasting. So there's the prayer that's turned from the fear of a God who knows everything into faith in a God who knowing it will correct it if I want him to correct it. 
and if I ask him to correct it. So there's comfort for us in the omniscient perspective of the speaker. And in the third place, there's comfort to us in the faithful labors of the speaker. He reveals. He does not leave his church in the dark. Brethren, if the Lord Jesus has a controversy with his church, he'll tell her. If the Lord Jesus knows there's something going on in your family that nobody else knows, he'll get he'll open it up. If the Lord Jesus has a problem with you, he'll show you. For every perception, he gives a prescription. And he gives precisely what his people need. He tells them just what they need to know, just when they need to know it. So don't be distressed. These letters to the churches in Asia Minor are relevant to us, and they're comforting to us, and that undergirds something of their significance for us. Well, this morning, I want us to introduce the epistles themselves, or these letters, or if we could call them notes, to the churches by beginning with the letter to the church at Ephesus. And in order to do that, we'll first read the seven verses that are incorporated in the instructions of our Lord in the body of the letter to Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, he that walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And you remember that that means that in the hand of Jesus Christ are those who are in the church responsible for the proclamation and the guarding of the truth of the faith. And then the seven golden lampstands are the churches represented by this symbolic number of completion, seven. All the churches throughout the world are in the hands of Jesus Christ, exemplified by these seven. In verse 2 he says, I know your works and your toil and patience or your steadfast endurance and that you cannot bear evil men and you did try them that call themselves apostles and they're not and you did find them false and you have patience and did bear for my name's sake and has not grown weary so he commends them for their orthodoxy their discernment and their rigid adherence to truth in practice and in preaching, even when it caused them to suffer. But, verse 4, I have this against you, that you did leave your first love. Remember, therefore, whence you are fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I come to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, Unless you repent. But this you have. That you hate the works. Of the Nicolaitans. Which I also hate. He that has an ear. Let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes. To him will I give to eat. Of the tree of life. Which is in. The paradise of God. Or the garden of God. Now having read that. I now enter into the task of expounding the epistle to the Ephesian church. There are three parts to my exposition. The first part is the foundation of the church at Ephesus. The second part is the faithfulness of the church at Ephesus. And the third part is the fall of the church at Ephesus. The foundation, 
the faithfulness and the fall of the church at Ephesus. This morning, my intention is to deal with the first one, the foundation of the church at Ephesus. And brethren, I am well aware that it would perhaps be easier or even uh, more admirable in some eyes to just dive right into the simple exposition of these verses. However, there is much that I believe to profit us from a more thorough investigation of what was going on at Ephesus so that we can understand the significance of what was written to this church. In order to do it, I'm going to deal this morning with the founding or the foundation of the church at Ephesus. Now, I'm not going off from the Scripture to do it. It's simple to discover the foundation of the church at Ephesus by turning to the book of Acts. And that's exactly what I want us to do. Book of Acts, verse, I mean, chapter 18. Acts 18, beginning with verse 19. We will read that in a bit, or we'll read portions of it. But I want you to keep that your thumb there on the Acts passage for us to follow through it throughout the rest of this message. We'll, we'll see the history of the, of the church at Ephesus and its foundation from Acts chapter 18, verse 19, all the way through chapter 19, verse 41, and then some more information in chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. The founding or the foundation of the church at Ephesus. Now, in order to understand that, we need to know something about the city of Ephesus itself. Ephesus was an early Asiatic city, which later became a Greek city, and finally, in 190 B.C., actually became the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. And so, therefore, it was under the dominion of Rome from 190 B.C., Onward, So that when the Apostle Paul came to Ephesus in Acts chapter 18, when John became a pastor of Ephesus later in the first century and then sent this letter of revelation to the Ephesian church, it was a Roman city with Greek and Asian background and influence. Now, Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia Minor, and was a chief rival of the city of Pergamos, or Pergamum, which was not too far away, which was the capital of all of Asia. Pergus, Pergamos and Ephesus were rivals, Pergamos being the official center of Roman religion and Roman government. You noted in the letter to the Pergamum church where Satan's seat is, and that's a reference to the fact that emperor worship was officially centered in Pergamos. Well, in Ephesus, though the emperor worship was not officially centered, Ephesus was probably more influential in its own religion in the worship of Diana in the temple than Pergamos. So that the emperor worship in Ephesus actually had more influence on the people of Asia than that of Pergamos. Ephesus was located... Was, I say, because there is no Ephesus now. You have to go do some digging in the dirt to find a remembrance of Ephesus. It was located in the province of Asia Minor on the Aegean Sea, across the sea from Athens and Corinth and the main part of what we now call Greece. It was the most easily accessible city of all of Asia from Rome and from everywhere in the south and from Africa. 
Ephesus was uh, a port city, which uh, through the years was close to the ocean, had a bay there, and the ocean receded. And by the time the Apostle Paul came, it was probably already moved back a bit. The, the water was not right up to the shoreline of Ephesus, but it, it was known to be a wayfaring city for mariners, a city of great commerce, a city which had great access from all the world by sea and by land. Because Ephesus sat in the, in the heart of a valley that led right through the mountains, right up into Asia. So that anybody from Rome that wanted to go to Asia would stop off at Ephesus by sea and go by land right through there. Ephesus was a central, influential city in the Greek and the Roman world. Connected by many highways and connected with all the chief cities of the province was Ephesus. Its location was crucial. And its importance also cannot go unnoticed. Culture and commerce of the Greek and Roman world found Ephesus to be the epitome of their delight. It was a religious center, as we shall see in a moment. It was a center of culture. It was a center of, center of much business and finance and commerce. It was very much like a New York City or a London of our day. Its political and commercial influence was vast on the Roman Empire, and Rome was careful to keep Ephesus under a good heavy thumb. Much fertile soil was there, and as it was situated on the slopes of two hills uh, uh, surrounding this valley that led back into Asia, it was a beautiful place and had a beautiful view from Ephesus out across the sea and back into the mountains. A delightful place to live, a place of importance, a place of culture, a place of commerce, a place of education, a place of much religion. Now, if you want briefly to look at verse 10 of chapter 19 of Acts, you'll see some evidence biblically of the importance of Ephesus in Asia. This is when there was uh, Paul preaching in the synagogue and the division that came about the synagogue in the preaching of the gospel. And then he separated himself with the disciples to the school of Tyrannus. And then in verse 10 it says, This continued for the space of two years, so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Two years, a period of time in which the gospel was preached and taught in the school of Tyrannus in Ephesus, therefore evidencing that all of the world of Asia heard the gospel. Well, how did all of Asia hear the gospel? It was in Ephesus that it was being preached. Because Ephesus, in chapter 19, verse 10, is a city that is at the center of commerce. It would be almost unthinkable that in a two-year period, almost everybody of any importance at all would not have passed through Ephesus and done business there and had some partaking of the religion. You have, have to be a friend of Ephesus or you're not going to get very far in this world. That was the importance of Ephesus. Well, now, let us, let us look for a minute at the religion that occupied Ephesus and her imagination. First of all, it was a religion that was unified. It had one temple. It had one God. It had one altar. And that was not particularly typical of the Roman and the Greek world of its pantheon. But Ephesus had a, had a, had a goddess that's, that unified the whole religious life and worship. And you know what her name was? She was Diana of the Ephesians. The Greek equivalent was Artemis. The Persian equivalent was Ishtar. Uh, Astarte, which grew all the way out of the ancient Babylonian myths, and that goddess came right out of Persia into the Greek world, and then that 
They changed the name to Artemis, but they kept the attributes and the qualities. And then by the time we get into Roman days, she's Diana of the Ephesians. She was quite influential. In chapter 19 of Acts, verse 35, we find what the myth was about her origin. The Bible lets us in on some of this important information. When the town clerk had quieted the multitude, he said, You men of Ephesus, what man is there? And this is chapter 19, verse 35. What man is there who knows not that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Diana and of the image which fell down from Jupiter or from heaven? The, the legend was that Jupiter had his image had fallen out of heaven and landed at Ephesus and that the temple had grown up there and that Diana had now had now occupied the place of worship in the temple that was erected to her glory as the living representative of Jupiter, Jove, the God of gods, the ruler of the universe. So that in Ephesus, Diana, mighty, world-renowned, profitable, greatly studied, provided tremendous revenues for the, those who trafficked in her, uh, in her temple and in her worship. In chapter 19 of Acts, again, verses 26 and 27. You see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying they are no gods that are made with hands. And not only is there danger that our trade come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana be made of no account, and that she should even be deposed from her magnificence, whom all Asia and the world worships. Now, there might be a bit of exaggeration here by Demetrius and his, his friends, but I don't think much based on the reading that I did. Diana was world-renowned. And her worship was known to be something to be desired. And it was also incidentally connected with making a prophet. In fact, uh, historians say that the temple in Ephesus dedicated to Diana was roughly equivalent in A.D. 95 to the modern Bank of England in its influence and place in the world. In fact, what the temple did was it became literally a bank. Uh, it was a place in which criminal, criminals could come, and as long as they were within the realm of the temple, you couldn't prosecute them. A criminal would run to the temple of Diana, he's free. And so what happened was criminals literally built a community around the temple, and the, every, it was like a big slum. All around the temple, all sorts of wicked people and criminals lived because they wanted to be able to get to the temple real quickly in case cops came. That was, the, that was the mentality. If the police officer came, we got the temple next door. So this whole big community of criminals grew up around this temple because it was an edict and it was uh, granted that if you could get to the temple in time, nobody can touch you because that was the, uh, the suckering of the criminal and the poor. Well, Augustus' image had been put there. Augustus Caesar, who also, uh, along with Julius Caesar, was called Pontifex Maximus or the pontiff of Rome, the heathen god who put his image there in the temple and later uh, identified himself with the image of Jupiter and later with, uh, in another way, with the image of Diana, which we'll find later. 
In the temple was a museum of statuary and paintings unrivaled in the known world at that time. The, the temple employed hosts of priests and priestesses, artisans and craftsmen. What do you think they spent most of their time making? Well, as we found in Acts chapter 19, they made little shrines, little images, mostly little shrines of the temple, little mock-ups. Apparently, from the ones that have been discovered, they were pretty rough and poorly made. But they just quickly made them, and they made great profit selling these things. Because people from all over the world went to Ephesus on vacation, went to Ephesus on business, passed through Ephesus on their way someplace else. And what do you do with the marketplace in Ephesus? You stop and buy a little temple of Diana or a little statue of Diana. And they made them out of marble and out of clay and out of silver. And all sorts of uh, craftsmen were employed by the temple to continue to manufacture this proliferation of images and to sell them. Much profit was to be found in the worship of Diana, even from people who did not particularly and personally worship her, but wanted to pick up a trinket from Ephesus. So there was much going on there in the worship of Diana. Now, in chapter 19 of Acts, we also find that Diana was not just some weird kind of goddess that had no influence on other parts of life. In verse 17 of chapter 19, we find this stated. It became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, that dwelt at Ephesus, Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Many also of them that had believed came, confessing and declaring their deeds. And not a few of them that practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the price of them and found 50,000 pieces of silver. So what was happening as I was doing some outside reading in the the worship of Diana generated a tremendous proliferation of the writing of books and the development of magical arts. It wasn't just some nebulous worship. There was uh, a worship of, of Diana that produced miracles and magic and unknown wisdom and declarations and oracles and things that could only be attributed to a deity someplace. There was a lot associated with the worship of Diana, and some men spent their whole lifetimes researching, studying books, and practicing magical arts drawn out of this worship of this central deity. In fact, the mark of their conversion was that they burned that stuff and got rid of it. So there was much going on that grew out of the worship of Diana, most expressly shown in chapter 19 by Demetrius the silversmith, beginning to read in verse 23. Follow. About that time there arose no small stir concerning the way, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no little business to the craftsmen, whom he gathered together with the workmen of like occupation. And said, sirs, you know that by this business we have our wealth. Starts out in his introductory comments and his little message here. And don't forget now, uh, we make our living by this Diana stuff here. You remember that, fellas? Remember that. Now, what I'm going to tell you is all based on that knowledge. You see in here that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia. And then he quotes what we read a moment ago. Paul tells people that they are no gods who are made with hands. And not only in verse 27 is there danger that this our trade come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana be made of no account. 
and that she should even be deposed from her magnificence whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were filled with wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And then you read on, and the city became thrown into confusion. They rushed with one accord into the theater, seized Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel. When Paul was minded to enter the people, the disciples wouldn't let him. In verse 31, certain of the Asiarchs, being his friends, sent to him, besought him not to adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the more part knew not wherefore they were even come together. A complete out of control riot, and most of them didn't even know why they were there. It doesn't take many, does it, to create a whole chaos in the world. The, the communists are experts at doing this throughout the world. Get a few guys into a mob, stir them up, and most of the mob doesn't even know what they're doing, and they completely overcome the economy of a place, just doing what everybody else is doing. Then in verse 33, they brought Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. Alexander beckoned with the hand and would have made a defense to the people. But when they perceived he was a Jew, all with one voice, about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. A two-hour pep rally for Diana. One just right after the other with one voice. Can you picture such a thing? If you watch television, you ought to be able to. If you ever watch a soccer match from Europe, if you ever go to some of those things, you can imagine this kind of stuff. Our brethren from Brazil could tell you about soccer. And they worship that stuff, and they can do things in the stands. They can, the stands can spill out onto the field quite easily in those places. Mass riots take place. Here for two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They're not going to take away our worship. They're not going to mess up our town. These guys have come in from the outside trying to impose their religion on us, their culture on us. They're upsetting everything. They're not going to get rid of Diana of Ephesus. Two hours they yelled it. Couldn't get a word in edgewise. Couldn't do anything. Hmm? Kind of frustrating for a gospel preacher, would you not think? No, not for Paul. It was at Ephesus that he, that he wrote his letter to the Corinthians. And in chapter 16, which we read last week, he said, There's a great door and effectual open to me here. And there are many adversaries. It was at Ephesus that he was referring when he wrote when the chapter we read this morning in 2 Corinthians 1 when he said, The afflictions we endured in Asia. That was where he was. That was the two and three years that he was in Ephesus in Asia. Much adversaries. The people opposing it. Yet there was an open door and effectual open to it. But see what happened to Diana. Great as Diana of the Ephesians. By A.D. 262, the temple of Diana was finally burned down for the last time. They had replaced it about five other times in history. It burned in 262 and her influence was so far eroded that nobody even took the trouble of rebuilding the temple. Two centuries, less than two centuries after this, it's over. Diana is no more. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. But the gospel burned her out. The gospel that they hated and shut their ears to burned her out. But notice something else, and I must say this just by way of parenthesis. Guess what took the place of Diana of the Ephesians in the 3rd and 4th century A.D.? What would you think? Especially when Christianity became the religion of the state by Constantine. You guessed it. Mary, the mother of God. And there was a shrine dedicated to her in Ephesus. And so-called Christian pilgrims began to make their pilgrimage to Ephesus to venerate the mother of God. 
Well, what is the association between that and Diana? Because Diana was the goddess of love and fertility, and she was called the mother of nature. Mother Nature. That's the worship of Diana. She was the mother of all living things. Don't we have the modern goddess Diana under another name today? You ever watch a National Geographic special? You ever read National Geographic? A very respected periodical in our society? Who gets the glory for the wonder of the world? Mother Nature. Who is given the, the attributes of creation? Nature. Nature knew that he needed to develop a longer beak, and so she gave it to him. Oh, that's not, I'm not exaggerating that kind of language. Every, most everybody in this room studied biology in, under that kind of mentality. You said, well, Pastor, we didn't worship images and shrines. We don't, that's not idolatry. You're getting too antsy about that stuff, brethren. We're so sophisticated that we know that nobody's going to swallow a line that a piece of wood is going to be uh, worthy of adoration. So we nice Western Greeks have gotten rid of our wood and our stone. We're smart. We still worship the same attributes. We still worship the same stuff. We still worship the same God. We just took the shrine out of the picture. We're more fools than they were. At least they, at least they were open about the fact that they worshiped something that had no right to be worshiped. We're, we're covering it over, pretending that we don't worship it at all. Though we refuse to give God glory, we're not thankful, and we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. Well, that's what was going on in the city of Ephesus, the uh, a tremendously profitable, world-renowned, mighty goddess, equivalent in her temple to the Bank of England, and the site of the worship of the Roman Caesar, much trafficking, much commerce, supposedly the center of the world. All right? One other thought I might add to you, if you ever compare the description in Revelation with Babylon, that city under which was found the blood of all the martyrs of the earth, you see the principal contrast even there. Remember when the great fall of Babylon took place in the Revelation? All the merchants of the world stood and watched her burn and mourn because they lost what they had in there. Ephesus was that kind of city. I'm not saying that you can say that Revelation means that the ancient city of Ephesus is the Babylon. What it is, the principle of the men of this world who worship what they can gain from this world is represented in cities like Ephesus, which is all culminated and subsumed under the image of Babylon in the book of Revelation. It was in Babylon, in Revelation, that all the blood of all the saints that had been shed from the foundation of the world was found. Well, you can't limit that to Rome. So the picture of Babylon is the picture of this kind of world in which men move into cities together and in those cities get their local deities and try to have as much influence as they can to their own profit and they resist any incursion from the truth to bother them. So the Christian church is always under threat from such a city because she's going to lose out if the gospel wins. The merchants are going to mourn if the gospel overcomes 
and the temple of Diana burns and there's no more to be gained from her. Are you people aware of the percentages of the incidences of AIDS in this country and how many of the cases are in New York City alone? Don't just look in the newspaper and get this picture that everybody in the country is a debaucherous human being. The real facts are that the vast majority of this stuff is located in a few central Most of the folks in the country aren't sophisticated enough to have learned the ins and outs of such debauchery. But in the news, it's very little told that what's, that a few of these little local cities are the centers of all kinds of death and destruction. What's being told is that we ought to continue to subsidize it. The picture of the Bible from Nimrod all the way forward is men get together and build cities and fight God. They get together so they can make profit, so they can get strength and power. What has God been doing ever since? He's been confusing them so they can never get as much as they want. At Babel, let's work together. So God confused the language or they would have accomplished what they intended, he said. Lest they get something done here, let's go down and confuse their languages. But with all of the confusion, with all of God's restraints, men have still done an awful lot. And made a lot of progress in their gathering together in cities. There's nothing wrong with cities, brethren. But there's only one city that's worth living in. And it's the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. The cities of this world are not worth living in. Unless you have to. If you have to, live in them. But look forward to heaven. If you live in the heart of a city, you ought to love heaven all the more. If you have a chance not to live in the midst of it, get out of it if you can. You don't have to. Don't do it. It's this, the history of cities in this world are the histories of wickedness. Men get together and wickedness abounds and increases. That's the danger and the biggest problem of television. See, what television has done, it's exposed the little poor guy out in the country in a little farmhouse to the sickness of the inner city of Brooklyn. A guy who used to not know anything went on. I would admonish you, if you don't want to be carried away with that stuff, be very selective in how frequently you read the newspaper and listen to the news. A hundred years ago, they didn't get a daily paper, and they didn't listen to the nightly news. They made it. What would happen if you did not know what went on in Germany last night? Unless you're in control of what goes on in Germany and can change it, what would happen if for a couple of days you didn't know? You said, but Pastor, what if, the, what if there was a nuclear war? You'll find out soon enough. No, I don't mean to be light. I thought about this the other day. We let the world and this whole picture of the world's gathering together against the Lord and His anointed. We, we want to find out how things are going in those places. We want to keep up with the latest. And what happens? We get negative. And we get depressed. And we get down. And we don't enjoy Christ in the midst of that. And that wasn't a rabbit, brethren. That's an outgrowth of the picture of the city of man that is epitomized in Ephesus. Ephesus was that which in the book of Revelation is pictured as being a threat to the people of God and they're told to come out of her and don't partake of her fornications and she ultimately falls and the men of the world mourn over her fall while the saints of God rejoice and say righteous art thou O God. That's the history of the world that was Ephesus. She is everything this world represents. And he that loves this world or the things that are in the world, the love of the Father is not in it. 
Well, out of that background, we have the church at Ephesus founded. It's that kind of city to which the apostle goes with his companions on his second missionary journey from Antioch. And they arrive in Ephesus in chapter 18, verse 19. They came to Ephesus, and Paul left his friends there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He goes to the place where the word of God would be most normally heard and witnessed. He doesn't start at the most illogical and most outlandish place. He doesn't start out going into downtown Ephesus, standing on a street corner in the middle of lunch hour while people are trying to get their hot dogs and stand on a box and say, I've got to preach to you. That may seem bold, but that has not been the typical practice of of sane men in history. If they have a place in the city that's called the soapbox, like in London, and they offer the opportunity of people to gather and hear things preached, then go preach it. If it's customary and if people are not going to be offended naturally by that, go preach it. But to presume to go to somebody, interrupt him in the middle of his day, and think he wants to hear what you're going to say and is going to listen, that's not wise. So he went to the synagogue and started where the people of God were, where the Jews were, and debated and reasoned in the synagogue. And when they asked him to abide longer, he didn't consent. But taking leave, he said, I'll return again to you if God will. He set sail from Ephesus. Now he left. So he was there just a brief time. He reasoned in the synagogue. Then down in verse 24, we see something else in the development of the church at Ephesus. A certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by race, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. And he was mighty in the scriptures. And we believe that to be the Old Testament scriptures. He is not yet aware of apostolic doctrine. This man has been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in spirit, he spake and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. In other words, messianic prophecy out of the Old Testament, he knew and preached eloquently and boldly. It's probable that Apollos' preaching was more eloquent than Paul's preaching and was one of the reasons that some of the Corinthians preferred Apollos over Paul and was a divisive church. Apollos was a mighty orator with much boldness. And Paul was sort of known to be rather meek and afraid and trembling and came with much weakness of flesh. They were both men of God. The things concerning Jesus, knowing only the baptism of John. So he's not preaching that Jesus Christ is Messiah. He's preaching the things that concern what we know to be Jesus, but he didn't know to be Jesus. He knew only the baptism of John. I seek to prove that. Verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila or Aquila heard him, they had come over from Corinth through some persecution, they took him to them and expounded unto him the way of God more accurately. Well, that is evidence that whatever he was saying concerning Jesus was not a full blown doctrine. He didn't understand. He was bold and what he was saying was true. But it was what he didn't know and what he left out that needed to be instructed more fully. So these two took him into the home. They were known to be saints of God. I would not, brethren, make too much out of Priscilla in this case. Be very careful you don't base the doctrine of women preachers on this verse. Uh, A narrative verse that is not explicit at all as to who did most of the talking. 
when he was minded to pass over to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him, wrote to the letters to receive him to the disciples when he was come. He helped them in Corinth very much. He powerfully confuted the Jews publicly showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So see the advancement of his doctrine. He had preached the things concerning Jesus, but not in his own mind connecting Jesus with those things. Now he is preaching publicly to the Jews that the Messiah is Jesus. Now look at chapter 19, verse 1. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus. Now this is Again, on a trip to Ephesus, he found certain disciples. Disciples of what? Well, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Anxiously waiting for their glorious and joyous response, which would have been typical of uh, uh, Gentiles out there in the world who heard the gospel for the first time. They said to him, no, we did not so much as hear whether the Holy Spirit was or literally was given yet. Assuming that when Messiah came, the Holy Spirit would be given, we didn't know that it happened yet. No, we haven't had such an experience. He said, into what then were you baptized? Paul linking the reception of the Holy Spirit to baptism. In other words, not just to the act and rite of baptism, but into whom? Into whose name? What was the significance and the doctrinal founding of your baptism? What does your baptism mean if you don't have the Holy Spirit? Then in whose name are you walking and living and believing and preaching? Whose disciples are you? And they said, into John's baptism. The same as Apollos, knowing only the baptism of John. You see, Apollos left Ephesus before he grew in the faith. Priscilla and Aquila helped him, instructed him more fully. He went to Corinth and preached Jesus to them. Paul comes back to Ephesus, and there are some disciples of John there. Now, they may have known Apollos. They may not have known Apollos. But at least we can see that in Ephesus, which was a commercial and cultural center, people lived and had come who had heard John preach who had been baptized either by John or by John's disciples, and who were waiting on the consolation of the kingdom of God, fully confident that when Jesus, when Messiah came, they'd know it all, but still waiting, repented from sin, identifying with the kingdom of God, disciples of John with a good heart and a good conscience toward God. That's what exists in Ephesus at this time. The only people that have heard good preaching have been those Jews very briefly in the synagogue in which Paul passed. Apparently, these disciples had not met up with any of them and been instructed more fully. So what does Paul do? He explains to them. Verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him that should come after him. Not on John should they believe. I must decrease, he must increase, but on the one come after him. And Paul says, which is Jesus. And when they heard this, what? That John's preaching had pointed to Jesus, and Jesus has come, and it is him on whom we must believe, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, as an evidence of apostolic authority in conveying the gifts of Christ, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spake with tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men. Now, these apparently are the first full-blown converts to Christ in Ephesus who fully understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the founding of the, of the church at Ephesus begins with these 12. But over in chapter 20, we notice that the church grew rapidly. How do we know? Well, because when Paul wanted to meet on his last trip through Ephesus sometime later, the elders from the church at Ephesus, in verse 17 of chapter 20, he stopped at Miletus, which is on the coast just north of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea. He didn't want to stay in Ephesus. He knew that if he stopped in Ephesus, they'd make him stay, and he wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost if he could. He called to him the elders of the church. The word there is presbyteros. When they were come to him, he spoke to them. And remember, he gathered them together in that great emotional departing speech. They on the beach there at Ephesus, and they had, uh, I mean, at Miletus, and they had this wonderful uh, heartbroken experience of saying goodbye to Paul. And then he says in verse 27, I shrank not from declaring unto you the whole counsel of God. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or bishops. The word is different, speaking to the same man, presbyters, bishops. To feed the church of the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, etc. There are many elders in the church at Ephesus. By the next time Paul comes through here, this is about three or four years later. The church has grown rapidly. It required many elders. So from those beginnings of those 12 disciples of John, the next visit of Paul, he spent three years there, or two and a half years, including the first. There's a big church there now with lots of elders from whom many men are going to arise as wolves, not caring for the flock. But the thing I want to conclude with this morning and the important, most important part of this sermon on the foundation of the church is not the rapid growth of the church, but the solid establishment of the church at Ephesus. And this is the heart of the message. So stay with me for just a few minutes as I undergird your minds regarding the establishment of a church. And this becomes something of a model for Christian missionary church planting for us. In the first place, the church in Ephesus was established by apostolic doctrine and example. It was set in apostolic doctrine and example. First of all, the Apostle Paul was the one who founded the church in establishing the gospel there. And in his doing it, look at the way he did it. The first thing we notice is that he was diligent in his labor. Look at chapter 20 of Acts. You don't start churches lazily. Diligence in labor. If you want to found the church rightly. Chapter 20, verse 17, he called the elders. And in verse 18, he says, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, after what manner I was with you all the time, serving the Lord with all lowliness of mind and with tears and with trials which befell me by the plots of the Jews, how I shrank not from declaring unto you anything that was profitable. 
and teaching you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Diligence in labor ceased not publicly and privately to teach the things of Christ. It's from the day he set foot in Asia, shrank not, even though he was under persecution, shrank not, but the whole time serving the Lord. His own admonition to us in, Ephes- in, Ephes- in the letter to Ephesus, in diligence, serving the Lord. In Romans, through the epistle of the Romans, in, in your business, be diligent, serving the Lord. That's the way he was from the first day right through. But in the second place, not only was he diligent in labor, but he was fervent in spirit. In verse 19, with tears and with trials which befell me by the plot of the Jews, I shrank not fervent in spirit. Verse 31 tells us, Wherefore watch you, remembering that by the space of three years I ceased not to admonish everyone night and day with tears. This man could well have been accused of being a bit too excited about his subject. People get a little tired of him because he didn't want to quit talking about the kingdom of Christ. Come on, Paul, we've had enough. People putting, watching their watches as he preached. If they'd had them, or their sundials, or whatever they used. There probably were plenty of them. Here's the guy that's eat up with the gospel of Christ, as we would say in the South. He's a man who the zeal of the house of God has consumed him. He shrinks not day and night, but look at him with tears. The tears coming from the grief that the Jews, his own people according to the flesh, won't listen And the grief that many of the Gentiles are carried away with their love of the world and their love of things and their love of their friends and their love of their money and their pursuit of their pleasures and their happiness. And he weeps in their presence and no doubt in private, begging for God to give a breakthrough. See, the gospel normally comes in this kind of setting. Even when it's successful, there's also much to make you weep. This fervency of spirit is shown in the length with which he stayed and preached. Well, against many adversaries, three years. For the space of three years, I stopped not. Even though they were persecuting me, there's a fervency of spirit and a diligence in labor in New Testament church planting. And in the third place, not only a diligence in labor and a fervency in spirit, but a worthiness of content. Worthy in content is the ministry of the apostle. Look at verse 21. The content of his message. A worthy one. Chapter 20, verse 21. Testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks. In other words, everybody in the world is a subject to this message. There's no selection, no respective persons. And what's he testifying? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. It never can separate one from the other. Telling men, here's where you do not conform to the law of God. You're guilty. There's sin. You must turn from your sin. But not only from your sin, you must embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone with a whole heart. Faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Making up something of the substance and the central essence of His message for three years. Day and night. Ceased not. 
testifying and the heart of the testimony. Repentance from sin toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't preach faith apart from repentance. And you must never preach repentance apart from faith. Tell them what it is they must turn from and tell them who it is they must turn to. But tell them both. Don't just talk about sweet Jesus without explaining to them what's got to go if they run to Him. That's the founding of a church. You don't go into town just trying to make folks attracted to Christ by setting up a little wagon with a nice choir and a good organ, getting the right clothes and the right right packaging, having a neat service and hoping you'll get enough on that basis to get you a church and a salary so you can stay in town a few months and start a church. You tell them to repent and to believe on Christ. And if you get anything other than that out of them, you haven't built the church. Might as well go help them erect another temple to Diana. they got to drop what they're doing and change their way of life and live for somebody else. That's the founding of a church. It's not church planting if you're not teaching the preaching the gospel. It's not church planting if you're not calling sinners to repentance. It's something else. If you want to be a missionary, get it in your head what that means. It means going somewhere where they haven't heard about Christ, telling them about Christ, starting a church and baptizing them. And then it means their family's going to hate you, the society's going to hate you, the culture's going to hate you, and you're going to have problems however long you stay there. That's what it means to plant a church. At least let's get that clear. It doesn't mean going to a church and changing them from Presbyterian to Methodist. That may be worthy in some way, but it's not church planting. It's not missions. Well, Paul, the doctrine that he preached was worthy. Verse 21, but verse 25, look at further. Now behold, I know that you all among whom I went about preaching the kingdom. What does he mean? Is this another message? To some people he preached repentance and faith, and to others he preached the kingdom. If you talk to some of our dispensational friends, you might get that impression. That the kingdom of God is something separate. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes and sets it up for a thousand years in Jerusalem. No, no. It's the same message he's speaking of. What he's preaching when he preaches repentance towards God and faith toward Jesus Christ is the kingdom. The same thing John preached. The kingdom of God is upon you. Repent. The same thing Jesus preached. The kingdom of God is among you. Repent. Paul preached the same thing. Remember when he had his big chance with Festus and Felix? You didn't hear the guy thinking, well, man, you know, if I can get the ear of these guys, we could get probably a big church here in Caesarea because they've got money. If we could get a church in the palace, I could set myself up. I could get away from all this persecution. I could live a little longer. I could close out my ministry with a dignified retirement plan. I could set the, you know, if I approach this guy right, we might be able to get, if I could get him saved. Now, what would he listen to? What parts of the Bible would be attractive and appealing to him? And Paul goes about No, he reasoned with the man of righteousness, judgment to come, and self-control. Looking at a guy lounging on his couch with the girls coming by dropping grapes in his mouth and the fellow standing on him full-time fanning him and all the pomp of the court 
as Drusilla and all that bunch went through here and the big feast that they have and the debauchery and the filth. And Paul speaks of self-control to him. And he speaks of righteousness. And he speaks of the judgment to come. Uh, I'll hear you at a more convenient season. That's all the man knew, brethren. What I'm telling you is that if you want to start a church for Jesus Christ in his name, there's one message. It's the kingdom of God that men enter by turning away from the kingdom of the world. It's the kingdom of God that demands radical repentance and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 27, another thing. Not only was it repentance and faith, the gospel in verse 24, the kingdom in verse 25, but in verse 27, the whole counsel of God. There wasn't an aspect of the doctrine that he omitted for pragmatism's sake, for convenience sake, for pleasure's sake, for gain. He did not withdraw from any aspect of the truth, even though it might have cost him his life at any minute, even though his own blood might have fallen on his parchments as he read them and quoted them. He didn't care. He did not hold back the whole counsel of God. I say to my children when they say, Dad, when we pass by a church building, does that church preach the truth? If I know what the church stands for and preaches, I say, well... Some of the things they say are true, but they do not preach the whole counsel of God. That's why I want you to go to this church. That's what I tell them. Make sure you don't lower the standard to say, well, those other people are not all bad. Nobody's saying they are. Don't say, well, there are Christians in other churches. Nobody's saying they're not. Don't say, well, they preach Jesus too. Nobody's saying they don't. But go a little bit further than that and ask yourself, what is the norm? What does God want? What kind of churches does Christ found? Churches that are born out of the declaration for years of the whole counsel of God. Nothing held back. Brethren, we're not the epitome of it here. We have a long way to go. There are a thousand sermons I've got back in my mind now I want to preach today to you that you don't know. Things you haven't learned yet. But one thing that we must never relinquish is our utter resolve, conviction, and commitment that the whole counsel, not of us, but of God, will be heard in this place. And if it ever comes to about that that's not the case, let's quit it. It's not worth it. It ought to be easier for us. We're not even being persecuted very much for it. Nobody's threatened my life recently except the, that demon who transforms himself into an angel of light. But so far, he hasn't had any chance to get at me. I've got one watching him that's bigger than he, the whole council. And then in verse 31, Wherefore, watch you, remembering that for the space of three years I ceased not to do what? To come by your houses and find out how you're doing, pat you on the head and say, oh, I'm so glad you're in my church. Well, that's part of it. But he ceased not to admonish. Let me set you straight if you have not got this straight yet, brethren. Part of the very essence of the reason I stand here and the reason you pay me. So I'll have the privilege to admonish you. 
What you're paying for when you pay me is the privilege of authoritative admonition to you to correct you when you're wrong. And if in your heart you don't want that happening and you tiptoe around me and every time it looks like I've got an admonition, you find a neat way not to be available for me, you are resisting the ordination of God for your own soul. You ought to open your home to your pastor and say, Pastor, if you've got anything to tell me, I want to hear it. I want to be a holy man or woman. Come, have at me. You wives ought to be the same way towards your husbands who are, who are given by Christ to lead you spiritually. Your children ought to be the same way with your parents. Mommy and daddy are given to you children to tell you when you're wrong and what to do right. Don't you get upset with them. They are messengers of God to save your soul. And parents, don't you shrink back from doing it for fear of your children. They're no threat to you. The whole counsel of God, which includes admonition on a regular basis. And I have to confess to you, it's one of my weaker areas. I'd rather do it from here than privately. Well... Essentially, the church at Ephesus was founded on good teaching and preaching. You may find it in the epistle itself to the Ephesians. The glorious destiny of the church of Jesus Christ in union with him was a theme that was foundational in their, in their beginnings. Well, this church was apostolic in its beginnings. But I'm going to conclude by saying this other thing, and I'm not going to be able to cover it all, but I want to get the truth of it into your conscience. The founding of the church at Ephesus was marked by a radical conversion and reaction. Radical conversion and reaction. You notice what we've read just in the portions we've read from Acts. Their conversion registered itself immediately in the transformation of their values and the transfer of their allegiance from the things of this world to the things of Christ. We saw it in chapter 19, I believe. Yeah, verse 18. Many of them who believed came confessing and declaring their deeds. There's a principle here. If you've been sinning publicly... You've got to repent publicly. Because if the whole city's been watching you trade in their traffic again with the magical arts and the books, then let the whole city hear you confess publicly that that's been wrong. If you've been known as a thief, make it known you're different. If you've been known as a murderer, make it known you're no longer a murderer. If you've been known as an adulterer, come out in the open and say, I quit that God, straighten me out. Confessed and openly declared. That is a guaranteed follow to genuine conversion. Without that willingness to humble yourself in front of the people with whom you've sinned, there's a question about whether anything's changed at all in your heart of hearts. And let me tell you again, when you repent, you are not in a position of dictating to God the terms of the repentance or the extent of the repentance or the timing of the repentance. It's immediate, it's radical, it's thorough, or it's not repentance. Not a few of them that practiced the magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of everybody. 5,000 pieces, 50,000 pieces of silver 
I looked for two or three references to how much that is, but even when I found it out, I couldn't figure out how much it would be today, but it was a lot. A lot. Uh, they gave up their way of life. They lost their business. They lost their careers. They lost their lucrative income. Why? Just because they believed in Jesus. Well, can't you believe in Jesus and keep that stuff? Can I keep my old acid rock albums, Pastor? I mean, those I spent a lot of money on those things. I hate to give them away. Well, what if I sell them for half price? Well, I mean, I want you to note what they did, the sacrifice they made in their conversion. And I'm going to draw the line at the end of this one and let you go home and think. The sacrifice these people made upon their conversion was, first of all, a voluntary. When we heard something about that last Sunday evening about the discipleship, voluntary. Nobody made them do it. This came from the heart. So that's why we don't have rules in the church that say whenever you start to join, you have any old rock albums left, you're going to have to burn them before you can be a member here. We don't do that. If you haven't understood the connection between what you used to do and what you used to love and what Jesus has done, then we're not going to be able to force it into your heart by demanding an external uh, accommodation to us. We, want, we didn't want you to be listening to it in your car radio just down in the church parking lot, but, but you see, what it's a voluntary thing. It ought to come right out of a heart of con- freshly converted. But also it was a principled thing. What they had been doing, brethren, was immoral, and it was a bad use of their time and their employment. So they quit doing that. They were practicing the magical arts. They got rid of the practice of the magical arts. They didn't even keep anything left over from the practice of the magical arts. A principled action is an evidence of true repentance. They acted on principle. They didn't count up the money first. They counted it up when they collected them and piled them on the burning pile. They didn't sit down and say, boy, what's this going to cost me? They lost it all because it was wrong to do. In the third place, it was costly. You repent, it's going to cost you. If you've made your way so far in the Christian life without it costing you anything, I question whether it's been the Christian life you've been living in. There's enough wretchedness in your own heart that if it didn't cost you something to repent, I wonder what changed. Something needed to change drastically in all of us. But in the last place, their sacrifice not only was voluntary and principled and costly, it was radical. Radical. Final. You know, I mean, what are you going to do with a book that just burned? They didn't set it over on another shelf and say, well, I've repented against that. And then once in a while, every day or two, run by and kind of check and see if the books are still over there in case they might want to check them again someday. They don't make provision for the flesh. They don't have one last fifth of whiskey hidden somewhere behind the flour in the cabinet in case they might have a taste come back up later once they've repented from drunkenness. They don't keep a couple of the old magazines back in the top of the back of a closet once they've repented from pornography and the love of filth. They don't keep going to the same places they used to go to and they don't keep hanging around with the people that do in order to keep their friendship. And parent, I'm saying this for about the tenth time in this pulpit. If you're going to continue to swallow the line of your children, that they're not going to have any friends and any fun and any goodness out of life unless you let them run around with unbelievers, you are a fool. 
You are sending them to their destruction by letting them walk in the counsel of the ungodly and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the the seat of the scornful in direct opposition to Scripture and the command of God. You think that God's going to hear your little prayers, save them in the last day while you flagrantly disobey His commandment to how you can help Him save them? No way! Radical! You're going to have to have the spiritual fortitude to endure the sneers of your own teenagers if you've put first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So you don't sell your record albums. You tear them up and throw them away. You don't make a profit from that which was evil. And you don't send it to somebody else to let him now learn to do the evil that you repented of. If it was a legitimate thing, like a a store that was used to promote something wicked, and the owner is repentant, he doesn't have to sell and burn the store. He can change that store into something that promotes good. But if the very thing itself was evil, you can't keep it. That's the founding of the church at Ephesus. See, swords were used for war, so they beat them into plowshares. They changed them into something good. But how do you change pornography into something good? A television may be used for some good. Maybe. So you don't have to burn your TV to prove you've repented, but I'll tell you what, the way you watch it and the time you watch it and the length you watch it better alter it radically if you repent. Or you have to question whether anything's happened. These people didn't sell out. They burned it. They made no profit from it. They didn't export the sin. They didn't promote it or profit from it. And some of us in our generation think that we're having to travel too far to go to church in the light of that kind of repentance. I say to you, if you ever get to a place where there's not a church to go to that preaches the whole council, no amount of travel will be too much for you. Don't let yourself complain about how far away it is. Give God thanks that it's close enough you can talk about it. I adjure you to understand that in the foundation of the church at Ephesus, there were good things that happened. We don't have time to recite this morning the violent upheaval of the city because of their trafficking in in the money was lost. Christian conversion creates problems for unbelievers. That's my point. If you get saved, and if you do right, people are going to have their lives messed up by you. You're going to affect their gain. What if they want to pay you cash under the table because they don't pay taxes, and you won't let them do it that way because it would implicate you in sin? What's it going to do? They're going to have to pay taxes on that money, or you're going to lose your job. Which do you think is going to happen? If you repent, you're going to lose your job. I thank God that this past week a man said to me, when I took this job, not a man in our church, a, a nice young Catholic man, he said, and I, when I took this job, I didn't know that they were going to make me work on Sundays. I, I invited him to come to church. And, and he said, well, I have to work on Sundays. I didn't know that when I took the job. I said, you know, I understand there are people in our church that have lost jobs because they wouldn't work on Sunday. And it made me so, it made me It filled me with gratitude and a kind of pride that I was able to say that about you as a testimony to a man. He was trying to convince me that his church and ours were no different. 
Yeah, we all preach the same thing after all. You know where church it goes to, don't you? We're all trying to get to the same place after all. Well, I wanted to see there's a radical difference in a church that was founded with people who repent. I was able to cite real-life instances of people who lost lucrative employment because of the Lord's Day. And among the world, they are in the minority who even believe such a thing ought to be worried about. All the odds are against you, except the kingdom of God. The church at Ephesus was founded with such preaching and such conversion. All the more reason for us to weep when we come to what's said about it by the end of the century. But it's good to understand what planting a church means in the gospel and what kind of churches the Lord Jesus wants to plant. Let's seek to be that kind of church with that kind of evidence of repentance and faith. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we're thankful that you have this morning faithfully opened our eyes again to basic truths that we need to hear and to love and defend. We ask you that for those who've waited longer than they planned, for those that may have grown weary under this, for those who may not understand the root of it, that in your mercies you might open to them up the reality that what they're doing in their lives and where they're moving and the direction they're going is alien and unprofitable to their souls. Help them to understand that the very reason that we are taking these things seriously is because there's something real in them, something true behind them. We ask you, our Father, that you would make the gospel of our Lord Jesus precious to us and that this church would be a church rooted in foundational principles of gospel holiness and repentance and faith. Help us to appreciate what it means to sit under the whole counsel of God and help us to be faithful in it. Forgive our negligence of it, Lord, and give us advancement in the cause of your kingdom in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.